you may have realized that being healthy feels different than it did in the past now that you're over 50. If you want to maximize your health potential but don't have time to read through overwhelming pages of Google links, this is the show for you. Welcome to Healthy Tips After 50. We love doing the research, finding solutions, talking to health experts, and learning what works and what doesn't. Now, your host. She spent the last 25 years dedicated to feeling her best and is here to share her best findings with you, Susan Rosen. Hello, this is your host, Susan Rosen, and welcome to Healthy Tips After 50. Today, I thought that I would do another one of those little compilation episodes with a couple of different subjects that I've been reading about that sounded really interesting and particularly applicable to those of us over 50, as well as those of us who might have parents who are even further along, which unfortunately I don't anymore. But I know that there are a lot of people out there who do. That's why I wanted to go ahead and talk about some of these. The one that I'm going to start with in particular has very much to do with those of us who are in our 40s, 50s, and 60s, and particularly important for those of us who are older, perhaps in their 80s or maybe even 90s, if I am lucky on who's listening to this podcast. The reason that it's important for those of us who are in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, again, is because Those are the people who have parents who may be starting to have some health issues, not to mention the fact that they may or may not still have a good social network. There was an article in the UCLA Healthy Years newsletter, and it had to do with how important friendships and social interaction is to us as humans. They're not talking about Facebook friends They are talking about people who you talk with and spend time with. It's very hard to replace those kinds of friends. These are the people typically who we grew up with or went to school with. Maybe we worked with them when we first started our careers. We all have attracted, or should I say we've all collected to a certain degree, number of friends who we stay in contact with and we talk with and that we talk with on a, on a daily basis. And it may be family. It may be sisters and brothers. It may be husbands, wives, but that's, that's the part that's really important is that there are people in your life that you are connecting with and talking with on a daily basis basis. It's also, if you remember from my Happiness Curve podcast, they talk about how difficult it is for people as they get older and they start losing those friends. What happens is that they don't feel that they can go out and make new friends like that, so they don't go out and make any new friends. That's where the issues come up. The big takeaway that I got on this article, which reinforced what I actually already knew, is that it doesn't have to be that long-term friend. 
It just has to be somebody to talk to. I know this from practical experience and what happened to my own mother after most of her friends all passed on and she was still alive, which I know she wasn't very happy about. What happened to her was that because of loneliness, which is what a psychiatrist who tested my mom told us, she started hearing people making plans to do things against her and cause her harm, like the woman who lived upstairs from her. The brain starts to invent these other experiences, thinking that they're happening, which may or may not be true, and most of the time probably isn't. And this happens when it doesn't get the interaction with other people that it needs. So what the psychiatrist told us having to do with my mom was that it wasn't Alzheimer's, it wasn't dementia, it was actually loneliness. And that her brain wasn't getting that day-to-day interaction with people. So she was making these up inside her own mind. And unfortunately for her and us, she was making up ones that made her extremely fearful and very scared. It wasn't anything we could change because she wouldn't go out and spend the time to make new friends or be in more social situations. She was very intelligent. She was on the computer. She was still driving. She was doing all of these different things. But in that one area of having that interaction with other people, she didn't have that. And it turned out for her that that was more important than all of the other things. The article in the UCLA newsletter says very specifically that loneliness is harmful to health. The former U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy has said that loneliness in the United States poses a greater, more intractable public health crisis than to make tobacco use or obesity. And then she continues by saying, during my years caring for patients, the most common pathology I saw was not heart disease or diabetes. It was loneliness. She wrote all of that in the Harvard Business Review in 2017. She followed up by saying that the elderly man who came to our hospital every few weeks seeking relief from chronic pain was also looking for human connection. He was lonely. The middle-aged woman battling advanced HIV who had no one to call to inform that she was sick. She was lonely too. I found that loneliness was often in the background of clinical illness, contributing to disease and making it harder for patients to cope and heal. As I said, I saw that firsthand. My mother's issues were all psychological and in her brain, there were many other sides of it, but we all needed to realize that that not just for ourselves, but as I say, for our parents or other people, family members and friends, who you know are getting older or getting isolated, you need to be able to watch out for them and get them the help and the friendship that they need. You can do that by making sure that they get out and talk to other people. Being a part of online social networks is not going to do it. You can use those social networks and the online to find places for them to go or for yourself, to meet people and be around other people. But those online social networks by themselves don't, under any circumstances, replace the actual 
in-person and or phone calls of dealing with people on a one-to-one basis as far as your brain is concerned. And that's something that's very, very important. And if it's so important for those of us who are younger and aren't quite at that point yet to realize and remember when we start getting older and maybe we move away or maybe our friends start to pass on like my mother's did, that is the time when you need to find other groups and places to meet people, whether it's an exercise group, maybe it's a senior center, maybe it's some group that's related to your individual interests, maybe it's a religious group, it could be a meditation center. There are so many places where people congregate and you can go and either take your parents or if you need it, take yourself. Go there, ask people questions. You don't necessarily have to seem like you're trying to be pushy, but usually if you ask people questions, they'll open up or maybe they'll ask you, oh, you're new. Why, you know, welcome and and where are you from? Be open to having that interaction with people. Another thing you can do is go volunteer. There are so many organizations who need people to come and help. They need those bodies and they need people to talk to people and greet people, make phone calls, whatever it is. We know that. That's been going on for a long, long time. And that would be a really wonderful place to go because you would also get all of that positive feedback on what you're doing. This is something that, as I said, is extremely important for all of us. I hope I'm getting that across. I'm assuming I probably am. You probably are saying enough already. I don't need to hear about it anymore. But if you had seen my mother's look on her face when she came out one night in the middle of the night saying that somebody downstairs this time was talking about her and was going to call the police on her and all of this, believe me, you would not think that I am being too forceful about all of this. The other part of it is as well, as I said, if you go to a, some, a gym or some kind of an exercise class, the exercise is good for your brain too, so you can get two for one. That will help you as you get older. And if you are taking your parents, it keeps them better able to take care of themselves. The other thing to think about is that if your parents or you are living by yourself and you can't get out very often, then one place to think about moving is some sort of a senior community. There are so many of them now because there are so many people who are over 65 or over 55, a lot of them is all you need in order to get in. And that is a wonderful place to be able to make friends, get involved in different activities. It's always not the same, excuse me, as being with friends who you've known for 20 or 30 or 40 years, but sometimes actually it could be better because you don't have all of that history and you can start out fresh. And according to Vivek Murthy, loneliness is a bigger killer than many diseases in older people. Okay, 
so I think I have done enough on that. And I will move on to my second of the three subjects that I want to talk about. This next one is actually kind of amazing. Um, it turns out that there are people who are posting on the internet that if you are having a heart attack and nobody's around, that if you start coughing, you can save yourself. I don't know about you, but that doesn't make any sense to me. So I'm going to read you what they put in the, um, again, the UCLA Healthy Years, in a different issue of the newsletter. They have a quote from an internet posting. It's pretty amazing. It says, let's say it's 7.25 p.m. and you're going home alone after an unusually hard day on the job. You're really tired, upset, and frustrated. Suddenly, you start experiencing severe pain in your chest that starts to drag out into your arm and up into your jaw. You're only about five miles from the hospital nearest your home. Unfortunately, you don't know if you'll be able to make it that far. You have been trained in CPR, but the guy who taught the course did not tell you how to perform it on yourself. Since many people are alone when they suffer a heart attack, without help, the person whose heart is beating improperly and who begins to feel faint has only about 10 seconds left before losing consciousness. However, these victims can help themselves by coughing repeatedly and very vigorously. So the UCLA newsletter says, continues on from that saying, like so much medical advice dispensed on the internet, this is not the recommended course of action. Quote, the American Heart Association does not support cough CPR because coughing does not effectively aid in increasing blood and oxygen circulation, which is the main goal of CPR. So that was a quote, that last part, from an assistant professor at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. They've all got these names now by, from the people who gave them a lot of money, but we won't go there. He says that the chest compressions used in CPR are effective because they help keep blood and oxygen flowing to the brain and other important organs, preventing irreversible organ damage. Simply coughing will not accomplish this very important goal. So I don't know who the hell came up with this, but I mean, even I could figure out that coughing is not going to be the same as CPR. On top of that, there are different kinds of heart attacks that you can have, and some of them, even CPR, real CPR, doesn't necessarily help. One of them is sudden cardiac arrest, which is different from just a straight heart attack. A heart attack is, the way they described it, is like a plumbing problem. It occurs when blood flow is hampered by coronary arteries clogged with plaque. Like a kink in a hose, blood flow to the heart muscle is slowed or completely cut off. And usually when a heart attack occurs, the heart does not stop beating. If it does, that's what leads to sudden cardiac arrest. What they're trying to say is that a regular heart attack is slowed or stopped blood flow. With the sudden cardiac arrest, there's actually a malfunction in the heart's electrical system. 
which is a totally, totally different situation. That does tend to affect people who have some degree of heart disease and may actually have had a previous heart attack, maybe not even known it. But there is damage to the heart muscle, which then leads to scar tissue formations that disrupt the normal electrical signals. And that's what leads to the SCA. They say it's very important that you get checked out, even if it feels like nothing significant has occurred That's when they use the atrial fibrillation and other arrhythmias that are risk factors for SCA. And that the person who actually has SCA will pass out very quickly. So even if you wanted to, you're not going to have time to start coughing, even if you do it very vigorously. Where we're going with that is don't believe everything you read on the internet particularly something that just doesn't seem to make sense. Okay, so that takes care of that one. The last one I wanted to talk about has to do with dehydration, which is really kind of interesting. They have found at Penn State, they looked at how sleep affected hydration status and the risk of dehydration. They were primarily looking at adults in the U.S. and in China, they found that the adults who reported sleeping six hours had much higher odds of being inadequately, what they called inadequately hydrated, compared to people who slept eight hours on a nightly basis. They think the reason for that has to do with the body's actual hormonal system, which regulates your hydration. There is actually a hormone that is released that helps to regulate your body's hydration levels. It's released all throughout the day as well as during nighttime sleeping hours. And that is what the researchers spent their time looking at in this study. They found that this hormone is released more quickly and later on in the sleep cycle. So if you're causing a description in the body's hydration, oops, sorry. So if you're waking up earlier, you might miss that window when the hormone is released and it brings your body's hydration levels back up. If that happens, what you should do is to drink extra water the next day. That should help. But I think what they're also trying to say is try and definitely get eight hours of sleep, which is also what I've read in many other studies and heard people who are sleep experts talking about, because the only people who don't need seven and a half to eight hours of sleep are people who actually have a malformation, I guess is what they call it, on one of their um, genes. And those people only really need to sleep four and a half to five hours. But otherwise, you need those full seven and a half or eight hours for your brain to go through all of the different stages. And it needs all of those to clean your brain and to keep it healthy. So that's like deep REM sleep. And there's a another 
one that is a like a medium level sleep and then there's a third one and I can't remember what that is. Anyways, the point is that our bodies and our brains are set up to sleep for seven and a half to eight hours. And if you don't do that, your brain is not getting what it needs and it can get stressed and it can start having other issues. I know I certainly did um, about seven, eight, nine years ago when I was only able to get about five or six hours of sleep normally. And that was because I was working full time. I had moved my mom up here to the San Francisco Bay Area and she was taking up a lot of my time. There was just a lot of stress going on in my life. So what ended up happening was that my brain is what suffered. And to be perfectly honest, I don't think it's still come back to 100% of what it was before I started that whole situation. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed that. And I do want to say that as always, remember that I am not a doctor and whatever I talk about on this podcast should definitely not be construed as medical advice. Would really like it if you would like my podcast and leave me a comment wherever you listen to the show, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, so on, or over on my website, healthytipsafter50.com, where not only can you listen to the podcast, you can read blog posts that I have put up there. And on top of that, if you sign up to get updates whenever there's a new podcast or blog post published, you can get a free ebook that I wrote that has 10 free healthy tips I think you would enjoy. I like them and whoever else has bought it or not bought it, but whoever else has gotten it has enjoyed it. I look forward to hearing from you. Please be assured that I do read all of the comments, although I haven't gotten very many of them. That's it for today's show. And I will look forward to talking to you next week. This has been Healthy Tips After 50 with Susan Rosen. To stay on the cutting edge of the most effective health strategies, subscribe to this podcast and let us know what you thought of the show with a comment or like on iTunes. Visit healthytipsafter50.com for this episode's show notes, more resources, and free offers.